This is the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 8th of December and I'm Anthony Day. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I frequently ask you for your comments, suggestions or ideas. And listener and patron Manda Scott came back to me and she asked if I'd like her to set up an interview with George Monbiot. I said yes, please. And so she did. Here it is. So, George Monbiot, thank you so much for coming onto the Sustainable Futures Report. That's my pleasure, Manda. As an introduction to our foreign listeners who might not be quite so familiar with you, George is a campaigning environmental and political journalist, a columnist weekly for The Guardian, which is our progressive newspaper, author of eight books to date, including the 2008 book that, in my view, should have changed the world, but unaccountably didn't, Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning, He's a screenwriter, that's one screenwriter. He's a songwriter. He's founder of The Land Is Ours, which is a movement to reclaim our capacity to walk across our own land. And he's an all-round environmental and political activist. George, welcome. Thank you very much, Manda. Thank you. And so today we're going to be talking about your book, Out of the Wreckage, which is your most recent book, A New Politics for an Age in Crisis. And my hope is that by the end of this, every one of our listeners will want to go out and buy it and will then act on it. Because I feel genuinely that if we can all take on board everything that you've said, um, with all of the caveats that are in there and begin to make it happen, we can change our world. And without question, we're at a moment of extraordinary crisis and potential for change. So you said quite early on, as you said in a different interview, the only thing that can displace a story is a story. So in the book, you tell us what the dominant story of our times is. Can you tell us for the listeners how you have condensed the dominant story of our times as sure. it stands at the moment? Sure. So the story is the story told by the neoliberal economists and philosophers, people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. Um, and it goes as follows. Um, the world has been thrown into disorder by the overweening power of the collectivizing state. And though it may seem benign in the form of the US New Deal or um, the um, uh, UK's welfare state, it will lead inexorably to totalitarianism in the form of Stalinism or Nazism. But the hero, who is the entrepreneur um, um, seeking freedom by creating space for the market, will free us from this road to perdition, this road to serfdom, and will restore order to the land in the form of liberty and opportunity and individualism. That, that's the way it's been framed. That is the, the broad narrative that the neoliberals tell us. Not quite how it's worked out and um, not quite what the real intent was. So this is the dominant story of our times. We need to generate a new story. Um, you have a manifesto of principles we want to live in a place guided by empathy, respect, justice, generosity, courage, fun and love, which sounds amazing. I know that if I said that to some of my more conservative friends, um, they would roll their eyes and tell me that I was being a flaky shamanic dreamer, which is what they do anyway. Um, but I, so I have two questions. First is, how many professional politicians have you spoken to of this who've taken it up? That's the first question. Have you discussed this? in our current political realm? 
Um, yes, I have, um, including with some pretty senior politicians. Um, there have been private discussions, but um, they have uh, been very positive so far, um, surprisingly so perhaps. There's a real sense um, among opposition parties that we need a profound change. It's not enough just to have a little bit of tinkering um, with the economic and political system. They need replacement. Um, and so this is a moment of great hazard, but also of great opportunity. I mean, it's a very frightening time in many ways, but it's also a very exciting time because it's a time of great rupture. Um, and at times of great rupture, those who are prepared and are well-placed to deliver and design and deliver a new system, um, it's really our only opportunity. And if we're not prepared, and if we don't use this opportunity, other people are going to seize it. And what both history and the current direction um, of world politics suggests is that those other people might be the fascists. Yes, yes, clearly. Uh, we, we, yes, if they, can, if they can shape a narrative that gathers the public enthusiasm before we can, then mm. they are going to sweep. And, and are sweeping, obviously, in yeah. many countries. And, and this is so, why we, we, it, we, it's not enough just to come up with policies or even just to come up with principles. We have to come up with a clear new narrative that tells us who we are, how we got to where we are, and that lights a path to a better future. And, and that's what I've attempted to do in this book. Yes, yes. And, and, and shape stories that make us want to... Step into it. I have a quote from Gary Snyder, um, which I just wanted to read to you because it also is one of the ones that keys into this. It would be best to consider this a revolution, not of guns, but of consciousness, which will be won by seizing the key images, myths, archetypes, eschatologies and ecstasies of our time so that life won't seem worth living unless one is on the transforming side. And it seems to me that that is what you're saying and what we need to do is... We need to create stories where the heroes are not simply making more money and getting more stuff, but are, are living lives that everybody else would want to live. And I'm, I'm waiting to see those stories happen. What do you see as the new way we can begin to look at the way our economy is shaped? Okay, so at the moment, um, whether you're talking economics or politics, everybody places themselves somewhere on a spectrum between state and market. This is the axis on which we identify ourselves. If you want more state and less market, you call yourself on the left. And if you want more market and less state, you say that you're on the right. Um, and, and everybody has this discussion as if that's the only way of talking about it. And in doing so, we forget that the economy is a table with four legs, not two. Um, and as well as the state and the market, there's the household, which some people describe as a core economy, because without the household, nothing else can happen um, if children are not loved and fed and clothed and taken to school. They cannot become functional adults and therefore they can't participate in anything else effectively. Um, and by ignoring the household economy, we devalue the work of women who still provide most of that economy um, and and ignore the absolutely crucial um, uh, uh, 
contribution to every other aspect of our lives that women's economic work in the household provides. But then there's the fourth pillar, the fourth leg of the table, which just is ignored by almost everyone. You'll hardly find a mention of it in any economics textbook, you'll hardly find a mention of it in any political debate, and it is the commons. Now, the fact that I'm going to have to explain the commons is, is a sign of um, how, how little it's understood. In fact, yeah. m most people really have no idea what it is, including some of those who write about it. Uh, but the commons basically consists of three elements. It's a resource, which is the second element, shared by a community on an equal basis. So any product of that resource is equally shared by the members of that community. And it is also the set of rules and negotiations um, created by that community to manage the resource. So this isn't capitalism and it's not communism. It's something else entirely. It's a non-capitalist, non-communist system. And it's a system which once governed most of the non-household economy. Um, nearly all the land in the world, nearly all the resources such as um, uh, irrigation water or fish or, or, or trees were once governed by communities in the form of commons. Um, and gradually those commons were seized, stolen, enclosed, um, primarily by private interests but sometimes by state interests. And then the role of the commons was simply ignored and denied so that everybody agreed, formed a consensus that really it's only the state and the market. Um, and, and it became almost self-fulfilling. But this That's remains a crucial aspect and should be a crucial aspect of our lives because it's only through the commons. Can you tell us a little bit about the tragedy of the commons? Because that was, that was mm. a concept that took hold that justified yes. the, the kind of mass enclosure. Yes, thank you. Well, it, it's, it's a concept which goes back to the 19th century, but it became famous um, through um, a paper written by a man called Garrett Hardin in Science magazine in 1968. And, and he said, oh, the commons will always end in disaster because the incentive for every individual player within it overrides the group interest. And he gave the example of a herder um, putting his cows on a common pasture and he would always have an interest in putting one extra cow on the pasture because he would get the full benefit of the cow, whereas the community would take the cost. Now, the thing about Garrett Hardin is he knew absolutely nothing about commons. He had no practical experience of them. He'd actually had no even theoretical understanding of a commons. And he made a catastrophic confusion between an open access regime and a commons. So an open access regime is something like the roads, for example, where you can basically drive any size of car or truck you want down that road and you will try to grab as much space for yourself as you want and other people have to bear the pollution and, and all the other impacts that, that, that you are causing. Uh, that, that's an open access regime. That's not a commons. A commons is a resource which is controlled and managed by a community. And as it happens... I worked with um, uh, common-based pastoralists in Turkana in, in northern Kenya, a system of exactly the kind that Garrett Hardin thought he was describing. And, my gosh, they managed their commons with extreme ferocity to ensure that nobody over-exploits it. If, if you um, 
um, uh, don't abide by the community decisions and start putting extra cows in the commons without permission, um, you will be first driven off with sticks. In the second instance, you'll be tied to a tree and beaten with those sticks. Uh, uh, you know, this is this is not an unmanaged system. <laughs> this is yeah. the, the, you know people are fiercely protective of the common interest because, of course, their individual interests depend on the survival of the common resource. And this is another aspect of a true commons that it's it's to be managed in perpetuity. It's an inalienable resource which can't be sold. It can't be given away, and it should be sustained forever. That's the point of it. And so, the commons. Um, part of the economy is inherently sustainable it's not trying to swap resources for money it's not trying to sell them off it's not trying to um, burn things up in the short term um, um, in order to um, get um, as, as, as much money or capital as possible and then trade it for something else it's trying to sustain the resource and what we find with enclosure around the world when people are throwing off their common resources and it's privatized is that it's not just that the community takes a massive hit in terms of its not just its um, um, material welfare but also its its social um, uh, welfare and its um, social and ceremonial life but it's also that the living world takes a massive hit because what happens is that um, the landowner just comes along, uh, the, the person who's grabbed the land, and clears not just the people off it, but generally all the habitats as well. And classically, this happened in England, where it, this all began, the um, model of enclosure, and is very well documented in the poems of John Clare, where he talks about enclosure uh, being accompanied by the total destruction of all the beautiful, wonderful places and habitats which he so loved as a boy and as a young man. And what we see happening to him as he documents that is what I've seen happening to indigenous people all over the world when they lose their common land, which is total psychic breakdown, where he um, um, becomes an alcoholic and ends up, he, he dies in a lunatic asylum. And, and, and what we've got to realise is that this has happened to all of us. This, this is our, the history of now just about everyone on earth. And we are living in a post-enclosure society, uh, a, a society which has lost its commons. And what we're living with is the environmental destruction that's caused, the social destruction that has caused, and the psychic destruction that has caused. And the spiritual destruction, I would say, and I, it's interesting because I hesitate even to say that because spirituality in itself and in a way has been subject to enclosure by the, mm -hmm. the mass religions of the past 2000 years that, that as far as I can tell were a means of controlling people's minds and people's concepts and of f forcing otherwise free people to accept a form of penury and, and at least part slavery and it seems I'm, I'm going completely off script now and away from my questions but it seems to me and I'm kind of thinking that this is what you're saying, is that we not only need a political revolution, we need to reconnect ourselves to the soul of the land somehow, mm -hmm. to the spirit of the land. And we need to stop being afraid of combining politics and spirituality. And even as I say that, I am afraid of saying it. And so what does that do for you? Well, um, look, I think it's essential to grapple with 
the deepest possible psychic and cultural issues in trying to address our political and economic predicaments. And, um, and, and, and that spirituality is a perfectly reasonable description of that. It is not enough in trying to grapple with our environmental predicaments, our economic predicaments, our political predicaments, only to think environmentally, economically and politically. We, we have to engage with the deep psychic and cultural issues which can very reasonably describe, be described as spiritual issues and frankly I don't care what label we put on them that, uh, that, that motivate human action and that guide us down particular paths and to this end I'd very strongly recommend that um, everyone reads a wonderful book um, by Jeremy Lent called The Patterning Instinct which looks at how um, our cultural environment creates cognitive pathways down which we travel, which often are absolutely catastrophic for each other and, and for the living world, and that much of our task must be to create better cognitive pathways. Now, the, the exciting aspect here is that I believe that our task in, in this case is, is not to change human nature, but to reveal it. Uh, the, the reason I, I started this book was because my previous project was this concept album, um, Breaking the Spell of Loneliness, which I wrote with this uh, the wonderful Ewan McLennan. And, um, and in researching this, this album, we, we wanted to know why it was that loneliness is such a terrible affliction, because you know it has devastating psychic consequences, but also massive physical consequences as well. There's a whole series of physical diseases... Um, which are greatly exacerbated by loneliness. So it obviously has a really devastating impact on our minds and bodies. And so the question we had was why? You know, what, why do we need other people so much? And, and we started, you know, as we started digging into the scientific literature, the first thing we discovered was basically our minds are social minds. We, you know, we, we, our mind is not confined to our own brain and body. It's something which, as an inherent property, needs to interact with, with the brains and bodies of other people, which is why solitary confinement is such an effective form of torture. Um, but then, then we started discovering a series of what, for me, were absolutely astonishing facts. Um, reading in neuroscience, in psychology, in um, evolutionary biology, in anthropology, the same findings coming up again and again. That In, in the words of um, a paper in Frontiers in Psychology... Human beings are spectacularly unusual by comparison to other animals in respect of our altruism. Now, this sounds extraordinary. I mean, how can this possibly be? Because, you know, look at what we do to each other, look at what we do to the living world, etc. But we're not inherently like that. We are driven to behave like that by cultural conditioning and the political environment that surrounds us and the economic environment, for that matter, as well. Um, but... What we find, what the science finds again and again, is that we're we're constantly trying to fight that in in ways which aren't always clear to us. We, you know, we're not fully conscious of 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 how we how we behave and 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 how we respond. But our values are dominated in nearly all people uh, by empathy, by altruism, by benevolence, and by community feeling. And selfishness and greed are in there. You know, we've all got a bit of selfishness and greed, but they're way down the list when you know the experimental work shows when it comes to 
uh, the importance that we place on different values. However, generally those who dominate, and Donald Trump is a very good example of this, have a completely opposite set of values. They're, they're amongst a very small number of people, about 1% of the population, who could be classified as psychopaths, people with very little empathy or none at all, with very little sense of responsibility, um, who just don't care about other people, don't care what they do, no sense of benevolence, no social mindedness. They are highly unusual, but they tend to get to the top again and again. And we have this really bizarre situation of a society of out altruists dominated by a, a small group of psychopaths. And, and we see this in, in one place after another. And uh, so it's not that we have to um, make human beings into something different. We have to discover our true nature. And, you know, so much of this work show, is basically showing this is our true nature. Our true nature is this, this really amazing creatures, really quite, I mean, way out there is an extreme biological out, uh, outlier. You know, there's altruism in other species, but it's nowhere near the level of altruism that we have. And when I talk about altruism, I'm not, I'm not talking about reciprocity here. This goes way beyond reciprocity. You know, if you give money to a homeless person, you don't expect them to give, give you money back. If you send money to a charity on the other side of the world, you're not expecting any material benefit to accrue to you by doing so. If you open a, a door for someone who's infirm, um, uh, uh, or help them with their baggage, or give up your seat for them, or something, you know, this isn't a reciprocal relationship. This is just kindness. And and it's and when we talk about altruism in human beings, what we're talking about is economically irrational acts of kindness, um, and and that is our dominant characteristic. So it's that which we have to reveal and bring to the fore. So, yes, yes, absolutely yes. And so how, how are we going to do that? Because we're in a situation where we're in a market-led society, where financialization is such that the psychopaths are able, essentially, to pay themselves money, which they then translate into mm. goods and value. They become the ultimate rent seekers. Yep. And they give themselves power. And, and at the end of the day, the people who can pay the army are the people who have the power that that in the end is what it boils down to and yet the vast overwhelming majority given the chance and if they are not steeped in commercialization and all of the signals that trigger their amygdalas to fear mm -hmm. and protect yep. them, then as you say we we need to reveal ourselves so it seems that to me that in the book you are beginning to step towards the politics of how we can change to become a sustainable, flourishing, equitable, socially just society. So shall we have a look at? Well, could, could we go a bit deeper first? Would you mind if we start with something more fundamental, which is the narrative? Because, you know, I, I actually think that you know, the narrative has to come first, and that's what's been missing. Yes. Um, so, yes. so um, you know, what... what I, I made four observations, really, over the past couple of years, which which have changed my view of where we stand. And, and this is, these are what I've been trying to, to, to share with people through, through this book. And the, the first one is that it's not po politicians or leaders or political parties that run the world. It is big political stories. It is a big narratives. If you look at the history of the past 70 years, 
um, you can see it as the history of, of two big stories. The first one, the Keynesian social democratic story, and the second one is the neoliberal story. Um, and each of them dominated for about half of that period, for about thir 35 of the past 70 years. Um, <clears throat> and what's fascinating is that during their period of dominance, everyone um, in power was first a Keynesian and then was a neoliberal. Uh, even Richard Nixon is alleged to have said, we are all Keynesians now. You know, when, uh, during the, sort of the Keynesian period from about 1940 to 1975, um, it, was, it, it was entirely dominant. It was, it was the, um, the, the story which everybody just accepted as common sense, whether you were Labour or Conservative, Democratic or Republican, you were a Keynesian. And then when Keynesianism ran into trouble, the neoliberals turned up with their story that I explained very briefly at the beginning, as, as they saw it. And, and within a few years, across the political spectrum, people were neoliberals. The Democrats became neoliberal, yes. Labour became yes. neoliberal, everybody became a, a neoliberal. And, and, and it, was, it became the new common sense. And, and so I realised from this, there were three further observations followed. Um, the, the, the first one um, is that um, um, the, th those two great stories, Keynesianism and neoliberalism, though they are diametrically opposed to each other in, in terms of the actual story they tell, use exactly the same narrative frame to tell that story. And this narrative frame is what I call the restoration story which goes as follows. Um, it it's, um, says, uh, Disorder afflicts the land, caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humankind. But the hero of the story, who may be one person, maybe a group of people, maybe even an institution, fights those um, nefarious and powerful forces, overthrows them despite the odds, and restores order to the land. And when I realised this, I realised that um, and this is the third observation, that this story has dominated in politics for hundreds and hundreds of years, in all its different variants, and in religion for that matter as well. It is, it's one of those narrative structures to which our minds are prepared. We, 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 it's one of those structures that we're ready to hear, and we're creatures of narrative. We don't, um, we, we, we don't interpret the world through facts and figures because it's too complicated. We need a shortcut which explains what's going on. Um, and we simply can't process all the data that's coming our way. And so the shortcut we use is the story. And we have an innate, evolved disposition to listen for a story that makes sense of the world. The sense we're seeking is narrative sense. It's not sense in the way that a mathematician or a scientist would understand it. it it's a narrative sense. Does this story unfold as we expect a story to unfold? Um, does it have a beginning and a middle and an end? Is there a hero who triumphs? It, it, it's this sort of thing that we're looking out for. And within that narrative sense, there are particular stories that we are attuned to, particular narrative structures. And the restoration story is the, by far and away, the most powerful narrative structure within both politics and religion. And this leads me to the fourth observation, the reason we are still stuck with neoliberalism, despite its total collapse in 2008 and in, indeed um, in the period leading up to that, and stuck with all the devastating consequences that it leaves us with, environmental, economic, um, um, political, 
social, psychological, is that we've produced no new restoration story with which to replace it. Um, yeah. and, and, and that is our grand political mistake. When the Great Depression brought the Victorian and Edwardian laissez-faire um, um, uh, ideology to an end, John Maynard Keynes sat down, wrote his general theory and produced a new restoration story. When, when that all fell apart, um, um, for internal and external reasons in the late 70s, the neoliberals turned up with this story they'd been working on for the past 40 years and said, here you are, here's your new narrative. And th people said, oh, phew, thank goodness, we'll take that, thank you. When the neoliberalism fell apart spectacularly with the financial crisis in 2008, we turned up and produced nothing, nothing at all, a total absence, no new restoration narrative, which is why despite its multiple and manifold failures, we're still stuck with it. And so, what is our new narrative going to be? So, the new narrative is, it starts with these amazing new findings in all these sciences showing us that we are inherently a wonderful altruistic species, but the land has been thrown into disorder. In other words, our good nature has been thwarted, and it's been thwarted by the powerful and nefarious forces of neoliberalism telling us that we're inherently selfish and greedy and this is a good thing and we should just elbow our way to the top and grab as much as we can and everyone's going to benefit from that because wealth will then trickle down from the top to the bottom and the world is going to be a happy place as a result. And, and that ideology has become so pervasive, has, has penetrated into almost every aspect of our lives that we've internalised it and reproduced it and can no longer see our good nature. This is a land being thrown into disorder. But we, the heroes of the story, the ordinary people of the land, by combining through recreating powerful communities, communities that are empowered through the commons, in other words, through having real resources and, and real powers at their disposal to change their own social outcomes, will confront these powerful and nefarious forces overthrow them and restore order to the land. Order in this case in the form of psychic wholeness accompanied by radical environmental, political and economic change. Magic. Okay, so how are we going to get that new narrative? How are we going to get the momentum behind it? Because in the past the Keynesian and the neoliberals had people at the top who were pushing it. We need this to be, if I've understood what you're saying, and certainly if it is what I believe, this needs to be a grassroots, it needs to come from underneath. And yet, the means of dissemination, to a large extent, certainly what we would call the legacy media, the print and broadcast media, are owned by a terrifyingly small number of people who are completely embedded in the neoliberal system and would push to perpetuate it. And even the new social media, as we've seen with the Russian troll farms, it's going to be harder to perpetuate our narrative in order to build the massed move towards the commons that we need, I think. And so uh, in the book you began, and I'm wondering where your thinking has gone since, to tell us, can you tell us how we can, how we, the listeners, when we put down our podcast and walk out, what can we begin to do that will work sure. to bring this new narrative about? Sure. Well, there's, there's two... Um, um, 
places from which we've got to start and one is from the bottom and the other is from the top because we, we have to build um, real community life with the commons at the heart of it from the bottom but we also have to engineer regime change at the top and uh, you know in a, in a democratic way uh, but we, we have to we have to change our governments so that they enable this to happen let's let's just talk about the top first because in a way this is almost um, the, 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 the the simplest and in some ways the, the more exciting part even though you know you might think oh gosh how on earth are we going to change our governments I, I think one of the most exciting things in recent history is something that happened in the first half of 2016 and you might say what what possible good thing happened in the first half of 2016 this Annas Um but actually it was in the Sanders campaign, the Bernie Sanders campaign, to become the Democratic candidate. And again, you might think, well, well come on, he didn't even become candidate, let alone president. So what are you talking yeah, about? Close, didn't he? Remarkably. I mean, the extraordinary thing is that Sanders started off when he launched his bid. He had three percent name recognition and he had no money. And that's not a great place to start if you want to be president of the United States. No. And he had this tiny, well, yeah. And he had this tiny handful of people around him. Um, you know, didn't have the big machine that Hillary Clinton had, or Donald Trump, or, or anyone else. And they and they sat down and said, "Well, you know, what have we got?" And the only thing they had, really, the only sort of big thing they had was people's enthusiasm. So, some bright spark said, "Well, what if we?" Give volunteers the jobs that staff would normally do. We can't afford to to pay many staff. Um, we don't have the budget. We're not going to go to Wall Street. We're, we're not going to be funded by Goldman Sachs or, for that matter, by Silicon Valley. Um, so how are we going to do this um, with, with, with volunteers? Well, let's try giving them a, a few small tasks that staff would normally do. And they farm those out. Oh, blimey, they do those really well, in fact. They do this just as well as staff would do it. OK, let's try giving them some bigger tasks and bigger and bigger. And suddenly they found out there was basically nothing. They couldn't farm out to volunteers except the national media operation, because that can be a little bit hazardous. You can imagine someone um, putting out a, a press release um, off their own back. Yeah. So um, but 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 the rest of it, basically, you can just hand the whole lot over. And then they found that the more jobs and the more meaningful jobs they gave people, the greater people's enthusiasm to take on jobs. They found that the, the bigger the ask, yes. the more the people want to... That's exactly, exactly. And, but only, you know, if your candidate's actually offering you something worth spending your time for. You know, it's, it's hard to conceive of Hillary Clinton managing the big organising model that the Sanders campaign did because basically she wasn't offering very much. But Sanders was offering much more in terms of policy. And um, and then they then some other bright spot had the idea. What if we use the first wave of volunteers to train the next wave of volunteers? Um, and, and basically, you know, the Sanders campaign was a, a giant live experiment, and they were just sort of making things up as they went along because they didn't have any choice really. And 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 so they tried that, and my gosh, that works too. And then they used the next wave to train the next wave, and it turned into this proliferating political community built around um, um, the, the attempt to get Sanders as candidate. And, and, by, and frustratingly, it was about sort of four weeks before the end of the nomination process that they really cracked the model, that they really thought, right, we've got it now, this is how to do it. And by then it was just too late. 
as it was, you know, they, Sanders got 46% of the pledged delegates. He got 22 states in his pocket, which was just extraordinary considering where it come from. And the way he did that was that by the end of the process, he had 100,000 volunteers who had organised 100,000 events. They'd spoken directly to 75 million people. And had, had it gone on for four more weeks, they would have spoken to every accessible adult in America. And, and then I think that he, that he would have been unstoppable. Um, he would have got the, the nomination and uh, he would have knocked Trump um, in, into a little hole. You know, it would, it, Trump wouldn't have stood a chance against him. So when, when, when yeah, and, and when this, um, I, I'd, I'd read a book called Rules for Revolutionaries about um, the Sanders campaign. It's, it's, it's got some fascinating, it's not a great book, but it's got some fascinating stuff in it. Um, and and very yeah, very inspiring. And and after I read that, I um, um, Theresa May um, um, announced a general election in in the UK. So I thought, oh, what if what if we did something similar over here? What if Labour were to pick this up? And so I made a little video for the Guardian, um, saying, um, you know, if Labour brought over uh, some of the Sanders people and adopted these techniques, they could stand a chance in this election. And if you remember when May announced it. The only debate was, is it going to be a 100-seat majority for the Conservatives or a 120-seat majority? Um, and everyone yeah, agreed on that. You know, everyone, all the sort of cognoscenti believed that it was just going to be a massive Tory landslide. Um, and so I, I made this video and I was told not to call it um, Corbyn could win this election. Um, uh, but, but it was like sort of, you know, Labour could in fact stand a chance. So it was, it was called something like that. And look, I've got a pretty thick skin. I'm used to a lot of criticism, but every single comment under this was negative. And it was like, you've totally lost it now. You're completely mad. You're, you total idiot. And, and, and I thought, oh God, why did I make that video? Yeah, I must have been mad. Talk about wishful thinking. And, and, but little did I know, little did I know that even as I was making it, Labour had quietly brought over a couple of the Sanders people and were launching a big organising model through the Labour grassroots, through momentum, and we saw the results. It was just extraordinary. In just six weeks, they turned the whole thing around. They went from a, a, a voting intention of 26% to getting 40% of the votes. They deprived Theresa May of her absolute majority, and they very nearly won the election. Two more weeks, the trajectory they were on, they would have swept it. No problem at all. And now, as a result, the government's in total disarray, and, and, and well, we, we know the rest of the story. And it was... You know, partly because they had um, a more inspiring manifesto than we've seen for a long time in this country, but also um, and primarily because they adopted that big organising model. And in fact, so uh, they, they it, it was experimental for them as well. And, and they've now been feeding back to the Democrats saying this is how we did it. And here's these new innovations which we introduced to it. And so, you know, we're still at this very experimental stage. But it, it, it seems to me that big organising is is this a tremendously powerful tool which we can now apply to just about any campaign. It doesn't just have to be a campaign um, to, to get a party elected, but for all sorts of things which we might be aiming for. And, and I believe that when we combine that with a new political narrative, which is still missing from um, mainstream political discourse, that's the point at which we become unstoppable. So what would, if you were able to script the narrative for the political discourse, I suppose Theresa May calls an election 
not that she's likely to do, but let's say she was going to call another seven-week election mm. and Jeremy Corbyn said, OK, George, I want the narrative. What would your narrative be sure. for the political difference in the UK? Sure. Well, so I've given you the, the broad outlines of, of the narrative, which I call the politics of belonging. This, this idea of us sort of rediscovering our good nature and allowing that to flourish. But in order to actually turn that into policy, there's a whole load of steps we have to do. And what I'm going to do, because, you know, I've, I've, I've basically the book is just full of policy suggestions following on from the sort of grand reframing that I've attempted. Um, so I'll give you just one example which illustrates the whole. Um, at the moment, we have this phenomenal inequality, as, as you know, um, and, and actually the inequality of wealth is far greater even than the inequality of income. And this is having this massive destructive and distorting effect on just about everything that, that takes place. And, and one of our main aims for anyone who cares about a better world and, and a better state for the world's people is to break the power of patrimonial capital. Now, they did that after the Second World War, both in the US and the UK, introducing taxes, income taxes, which went up to 94% in the US and 98% in the UK. Not, not just to raise revenue, you know, that was only one of the reasons. The, the main reason was to basically stop a very small number of people using their economic power to dominate everybody else. You're basically taking a lot of that economic power away um, from this tiny sort of 0.1% which was dominating everyone. Um, and that's what we need to do again. But in this case, we need to target it primarily at wealth rather than at income and at the kind of wealth which can't be hidden in the Cayman Islands and Panama and the rest. And what we're primarily talking about here is land, the crucial source of wealth, which is the means by which the very rich transfer the resources of the very poor into their own pockets. If you think of rent, if you think of what people are now paying in rent, uh, across Britain, for example, typically it's 20 or 30% of their income. In London, it's often 50% or 60% of their income. And basically, these people are working so that the landlords don't have to work. Um, yep. Because the landlords aren't, you know, providing any, they're providing a house, but a house they didn't necessarily build. The main price of that house comes from the land which underlies it. It's a speculative value of the land which they're harvesting in the form of these massive rents. And it's distorted the entire urban economy. It means that people don't have places to live. It means that they don't have local employment. You know, there's so many disastrous impacts this has had. So we've got to break that power. And we do it by introducing a high level of land value tax for people who've got above a certain threshold of, pro of pro property. You know, if, if, if you've got highly valuable property um, and it's extremely concentrated, I mean, the average... Um, property holding of um, people in the 1% in this country is £15 million pounds is the value of their property. So we tax that very heavily, not just to reclaim income, but to break that economic power. And, and then we say, right, what are we going to do with, with the revenue? Well, part of it should go to government to um, um, fund essential services, but part of it should be redistributed to communities on an equal basis around the country. And those communities will be encouraged to set up a commons trust to take that money. And there'll be various other um, facilitatory bits of legislation to go with it, like a community right to buy of the kind that they have in Scotland, but not in the rest of the UK, um, and a community right to land assembly. So that your commons trust 
composed of people, say, in part of an urban borough, can say, right, now we've got this big wad of money and let's look at what our primary needs are. And they might very well be for genuinely affordable housing. And I mean affordable housing, not affordable housing. <laughs> um, you know, really affordable housing. Um, and so let's look around and see what there is. Oh, look, there's this casino has come up for sale in our borough. Um, and is a casino our primary aim? I don't think so. Well, let's buy this, use our community right to buy, to, to buy the casino and the land it sits on. And we're going to knock down the casino and we're going to create a site uh, which is suitable for affordable housing, but a mixed development as well. We want people, you know, say 50% um, social housing, 50% people in the private market so that we have a nice mixed development. And having cleared the site, we're not going to design this um, estate. No, we're going to get together the people who are going to live there. So the people at the top of the social housing uh, list, combined with people who put down a deposit um, to to buy houses or rent houses through, through, through the private market. And we're going to put them together and say, you are going to design not only your own homes, but also the estate. And what we see worldwide is that when people design their own estates, the design is a hundred times better than when some volume house builder does it and says, here you are, like it or lump it. But the amazing thing you do in creating that is that you create a community before anyone's moved in. Because these people have to spend a year or two working together, designing um, this with professional advice. You know, you bring in professionals to help them, but, but, but designing the estate um, so that by the time they move in, they all know each other. They've all been working together. They've got this lovely estate which they've made themselves and, and, and which they can just move into as a preformed community. And then the Commons Trust has become a Commons Land Trust because it owns land. Um, not, not all the houses on that land. Some of them it does and some of them it doesn't. It's getting rent, albeit at a reduced rate, um, from that land because land value tax brings down the cost of land massively. Um, it's also still getting um, land value tax revenue from the government and says, right, what are we going to do with this money we've got? Well, either we can carry on building, which is great, you know, that's, that's one good option. We might create some public amenities that we don't have. Or how about paying out a local basic income to, to the people in, in this community? You know, remember that a commons, you, you share your resources on, 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 a, on an equal basis. And that could be one way of doing it. So suddenly, what you've got, you've got these empowered communities which are properly engaging with, with each other, uh, people properly you know, engaging with each other in a really deep way. You've got um, this transfer of genuine power and resources from government to the community level and from the private housing developers to the community. Um, and you've, you've, you've got a real living, thriving commons set up in urban areas. Um, and, and so what I'm putting forward here is just one example of the kind of transformative politics we could see. Yes, and, and embedded in that, and I don't think we're going to have time to go into it, which is so sad because we've got a different relationship with money, possibly different ways of creating money, certainly different ways of exchanging money. And, mm -hmm. and as you said, we're unfolding human characters so that people can begin to flourish as human beings who care for one another rather than as human beings whose sole aim in life is to pay off the debt that they have incurred 
acquiring stuff they didn't yeah. want. We're, yeah. we're changing the focus of humanity. We have to, and we have to get away from economic growth. You know, this is the this is the absolute key when it comes to environmental issues. You know, we half the time we think we're fighting a corporation, or we think we're fighting a government, or we think we're fighting human folly. But actually, we're fighting economic growth. This is a driver of environmental destruction everywhere. You know, we have, a, you know, three percent global growth. That means a doubling period of twenty-four years, and then it doubles again, and then it doubles again. And we wonder why we are running into multiple environmental crises. It's because the planet is not growing while the economy keeps growing. We just keep bursting through uh, environmental boundaries and just smashing everything, destroying everything. And we're going to render this into one big ball of dust. If we don't put the economy on a completely different footing, and this is why I champion, for example, Kate Rayworth's model of donut economics, which um, um, is an entirely different basis for uh, measuring and um, and and pursuing our well-being and prosperity. Yeah, and, and evaluating how how we see the economy so that we can, as you said, change the narrative. Yes, I'm aware that. We are running, running way past the time that we agreed, and I'm immensely grateful that you're still here with all the recording issues. Um, there are so many more questions, but I think we'd have to leave that for another time. Hmm. If you had a single message for people listening to the podcast of one thing that they could go away and do now hmm. that would be most constructive in helping towards the changing yeah. of the narrative around the world, not just people in Britain, is there one thing that you can think of that you would leave them with yeah. as a thought? Well, look, a crucial aspect of all of this is building community. We have to have a thriving sense of community in our own geographical area if we're going to build the sort of political um, movements that, that are required to implement this stuff because you can't really just sort of dump it on a group of atomized people. And what that means is creating a participatory culture. So, you know, to give you one example, in my own street, I'm currently planning with one of my neighbours um, to uh, start organising a big lunch, which is something we do in Britain in June, um, where streets get closed off and we put tables down the street and everyone comes out and eat, eats together. Now, you know, this is an absolutely fundamental aspect of belonging. Um, do, do you know where the word companion comes from? What the, what the etymology of that is? Companes with bread. I don't. Companes oh, okay. with, with, right. with bread. It's it's it's, it's a it's it's an uh, eating together is is one of the um, most um, uh, the, the simplest and most important aspects of fellowship, and um, and so it's it's through sort of creating a participatory culture where it's normal to engage with each other. It's normal to do community activities. Um, in in fact eventually through lots of different community activities creating what practitioners call thick networks where it becomes abnormal not to engage um, then um, that, that that's how we prepare the ground for the political changes that we seek and so the exciting thing here is that this is something you can do today you can just you can just sort of have a think think how can I get people talking to each other? How can I meet my neighbours? How can I get people involved? Oh, look at all these different activities which people have proposed. Look at these different community events, um, these, uh, uh, this participation that we can engage in. I could start this today. I don't need anyone's permission. I don't need to go through any authority in order to do this. It, it's something I can do right now. And that is a crucial social step 
a crucial psychic step, a crucial political step, which is one of the means by which we light a path to a better world. Fantastic. Thank you. George yeah. Monbiot, thank you for coming on to the Sustainable Futures Report. That's my um, pleasure. Everyone listening will go out and do something in their local community and begin to create the thick networks and the unfolding of humanity that we need so that we can have a sustainable future for our children and our children's children. Thanks very much, Manda. My thanks, too, to George Monbiot and to Manda Scott for setting up and delivering this interview. George mentioned a book that he recommended that everyone should read. It was The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent. George Monbiot has published eight books. I remember when he published Heat in 2007. I published my own, Will Climate Change Your Life, that year. Then I read Heat and I thought, oh, I wish I'd written that. Anyway, George's latest is Out of the Wreckage, available now from all good bookshops. Manda Scott is also an author. She writes historical fiction and has published more books than me and George Monbiot put together. Her latest is Into the Fire. So now you know what to spend your Christmas book tokens on. Or better still, you could buy them now as Christmas presents for other people and you should have time to read them before you have to wrap them up. That's it for another episode of the Sustainable Futures Report. There should be one on the 22nd of December. There won't be one next week. Um, And that one will be the last this year. I'll definitely be back in January, although I'm not sure exactly when. The problem is that I'm travelling extensively for the next six weeks or so, and my laptop seems to have died, which does make publication difficult. Anyway, if I don't speak to you before, have a really great Christmas, and I will definitely be back in touch in the new year. Thanks again to George Monbiot and to Amanda Scott. This is Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. That's it for now. <laughs>